Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, I'm just so excited because we are being joined by one of Britain's best-loved actors, star of Downton Abbey, Paddington, Viceroy's House, W1A, to name a few. It is, of course, Hugh Bonneville. So I spoke to Hugh last week. He's promoting a new film where he plays the author Roald Dahl, and we talk about that later on in the interview. And, you know, he was just so lovely to chat to on a very rainy, gloomy lockdown day via Zoom. I've interviewed Hugh a few times, actually, and he never fails to make me laugh. And he's traveled so extensively, both through his work and through being a really keen traveler himself. So we cover a lot of ground. He transports us to the deserts of Utah and to pockets of serenity among the chaos of India. We visit the pristine coves of the Costa Brava and the campsites of France. And he reveals what's on the cards for both Downton Abbey and Paddington. If you're a fan of either or both like me, you'll be very happy with what Hugh has to say. So let's hear from him now. Hugh Bonneville, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It is such a pleasure to be talking with you today. How are you? I'm very well and thank you for for allowing me into your bedroom. (laughs) I've well, I've, I've just moved in, so please excuse all the boxes that are surrounding me. <laughs> so you're taking the day off from your other day job as a vaccine volunteer. How's that been going? What's a typical day like for you as a as a as a vaccine volunteer? Well, it's been well. It's it's not as busy as it should be, or we want it to be. At the moment, we're only getting. Um, uh, enough to vaccinate to two two and a half days a week um and we've got a team of about there's about 80 of us on the on the rotor so it's a bit like being picked for a school team you know you're hoping that each week you'll get picked uh, the ultimate get, uh, goal obviously is that we'll be d- vaccinating you know 12 hours a day seven days a week but at the moment it's we haven't got enough supply um as, as i'm mm-hmm. sure is true you know in all over the country and hopefully that's going to ramp up so yeah i i've been lucky enough to be picked at least once a week so that's great um for the team and i um i'm not qualified to to jab i only got o level chemistry so um and i faint at the sight of needles but i am able to wave my arms around and um and encourage people uh, to uh, you know through the through the uh, actual journey of the of, of the, uh, at the at the vaccination center so it's been great and the i have to say the sense of camaraderie and the sense of just doing something you know trying to do something yeah. to get us out of this mess is really positive and and especially obviously the the people who are being jabbed you know some of whom have not literally left the house for a year um, you know, it was a lady the other day saying, it's the, I, haven't, I haven't been further than a mile from my house in over a year. And it's so lovely to come into the town. And yeah. well, people saying that they've driven, they were, you know, when they go online and book, um, you know, some people have driven 40 miles simply to have the experience of driving somewhere, going somewhere. Are you sure they're not just driving so that they can come and see you, Hugh? <laughs> I think not. I think not. I think life's a bit more serious than that. But it's no, it's been a really, it's been a great thing. And and some of the volunteers themselves, the uh, you know, there's a nurse who is uh, a mother of three and she's got one on the way and she's a full time nurse at the uh, hospital. And on her day off, she comes and helps. You know, there are people really 
going out of their way to do their bit. And so I feel very, very fortunate to be part of the uh, part of this big team that are, are doing their little bit in our part of West Sussex. Oh, that's really lovely. And all that hard work that you and the volunteers are putting in will hopefully mean that we're able to get away sometime this year. So today we're going to go on a journey. <laughs> A wanderlust-filled journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diary so far. And we'll start at the very beginning with chapter one, which is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? I think it's, well, it's a very vivid one. And I've probably got earlier memories, but this is the one that popped into my head when, when, you know, when I heard the question. It's, uh, It's camping in France. Uh, I'm the youngest of three, and we used to go... Uh, Mum and Dad used to take put this tent on the roof, this big canvas thing on the roof, and we'd get on the ferry and go over and and travel, you know, wherever. And we 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 must have been in eastern France somewhere. I can't remember, but it was by a lake. And this is such a vivid. I can smell the the tent, and it was after lunch, and I was obviously having a nap, so I must have been very small. I mean, you know, under five or something. And a wasp stung me. Came into the tent and stung me. And, mm-hmm. and mum and dad and my brother and sister were obviously down by the, by the shore. So, I mean, I don't know, a hundred yards or something. And I must have shrieked my head off because it wasn't mum who came into the, or dad who came into the tent. It was the neighboring, it was the neighboring tent or you know, a couple of tents down the guy, it was a Belgian guy uh, who came in and he happened to have, um, he was a physician yeah. and he happened to have some antihistamine or whatever. He had something that helped. And then my mum and dad arrived and they became lifelong friends. It's one of those, you know, moments in life. And so um, uh, Michel and Huguette Thierry from uh, Gant or Ghent in uh, Belgium uh, became our lifelong friends, uh, all because of this flipping wasp. Oh, my goodness. And as a result, uh, I've loathed wasps ever since and have an irrational fear of them and just want them, you know, rid of off the planet. But uh, this great family connection was forged. And uh, so I'm sort of grateful to the wasp. And I do remember, um, as I say, this uh, being on this lakeside somewhere in um, eastern France. Oh, that's so brilliant. I love that travel can lead to such random but formative connections as you say so so was travel a big feature in your childhood did you travel a lot we in those days of course traveling internationally was far more you know far less uh, common as as it was you know pre-pandemic and um I remember I remember quite a lot of there was pony trekking in Wales not that I I think I was again I was too young to be on the pony but I was uh, my brother and sister sort of wobbled off pony trekking so there were sort of B&Bs in Wales quite a lot and then, and then this camping in France, canoeing. My brother and dad used to love canoeing down the Loire. So I'd sort of, you know, be s- s- sat in my little high chair in the back, in my car seat or whatever, and uh, we'd we'd wander down through the Loire a bit. So that was memorable. And then, yeah, I suppose going to sp- going to the Costa Brava used to be- became in the late sixties became a bit of an annual thing. Again, driving down or getting up, putting the car on the train at Calais or Boulogne. And I used to love that, the, the experience of being in the sleeper. Um, I've always loved sleeping on tra- the sleeper trains. I just find them so exotic. Exciting. And, you know, yeah. you wake up and you don't know where you are and all that. And I can remember we'd get to Narbonne and this voice would say, Ici Narbonne, Ici Narbonne. And, uh, uh, and uh, you'd sort of get out and get in the car and, and then we'd drive the last bit over the border to um uh, to to Spain to uh, our destination. So uh, and because there were three of us packed in this old Volvo, it was a 
NUV220E. Why I can remember the number plate, I don't know why. <laughs> but um, it was a it was a little old round Volvo, and there was you know me sitting on the armrest thing in the middle of my with my brother and sister on either side, mum and dad in the front, tent or sometimes a tent or bags. Or, you know, it was all crushed in there. I, so either driving down through France or going on the train and then driving through to Spain. So that's a very vivid um, memory of, of of early years. And would you say that you had a love of acting from a very young age? Did you always want uh, to be yeah. an actor? I know I ne- never never thought I'd be an actor, but uh, I loved acting. I loved I loved the dressing up box. We had a very exciting dressing up box because my granny uh, and grandpa on my mum's side were in, had been in the air force, and so my mum was actually born in Egypt. Um, mm when my grandpa was uh, stationed at Ismailia, uh, is that how you say it? I don't know. Anyway, somewhere near, so on her birth certificate says Alexandria. So she's very exotic. And um, so she was an air force baby. And so they came back with all sorts of, uh, you know, Egyptian paraphernalia that ended up in the dressing up box. And equally um, my dad, when he did national service, when he was first married to my mum, they went out to Singapore. So again, there was some exotic sort of far Eastern, you know, bits and bobs and headdresses and um, shawls and stuff came back. So I spent a lot of my childhood diving into that box and putting on um, different outfits and pretending I was some, you know, uh, prince from Arabia or wherever I might be and making up these stories so uh, <laughs> that was that was always a lot of fun plus any uh, discarded medical uh, clothes that my dad <laughs> brought home because your parents were both medics they were yeah my dad was a was a surgeon and mum had trained as a nurse before she uh, left to have you know left the service to have kids and um uh and my brother and sister were very very good amateur actors as well very keen and so and i used to bully my mates in my in my road to come and be in my plays i i concede that i'd then go and play football with them but i'd rather, far rather do the plays on my landing um in which i i obviously starred as some you know um, exotic emperor <laughs> well it sounds as though there was a love for travel even infiltrating into your performances I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. And I, of course, as the uh, as one of the shepherds in the nativity, I travelled a long way uh, following the start of Bethlehem. <laughs> so, so next up is chapter two, which is the first place that you fell in love with. Where would that be? Well, it's really it's a connected it's connected to that first little anecdote, really, or that first journey uh, at the end of this uh, journey down through France and uh Going to I remember going to Carcassonne en route as well, and then we'd end up in this little fishing village called Tamariu in on the Costa Brava. I'm sure it's sort of completely overrun now, and uh, it doesn't look like it did 50 years ago. But it was a little fishing village, um, and I completely fell in love. And we used to go. We probably went four or five summers in a row when Dad would take two weeks off, and we'd go on this adventure. And um, we rented an apartment uh, just away, just up from the beach. And it was a ritual I can recall to this day of um, going down there. This was an era, I hasten to add, in which my parents or my mum said I couldn't go on the beach until I'd had the olive oil rubbed in. Olive oil! Um, (laughs) Can you imagine? I've always wondered why I have this slight tan, but I think it's because I fried for most of, you know, most summers in my childhood. (laughs) A deep fried hue. (laughs) A deep fried hue. I fell in love with this little village, uh, this uh, place called Tamariu. And um, uh, play on the beach, make some friends there. And then we'd always go and have calamaris and a Coca-Cola, you know, on one of the bars. And there was this very bolshy guy who ran the bar, Pache's Bar, it was called. And he'd always used to, and he'd see, if I wasn't with my parents, if I was just with a, with a couple of other kids, he'd just go, a la playa, a la playa, you know, get on the beach. And um, <laughs> so that was, a, that became a sort of 
family slogan, Alla Playa. And um uh and the and the lady, the landlady of the apartment we were in, she lived downstairs and ran a jewelry shop. She was this very voluptuous, buxom, um, 20-something-year-old. I was about six or seven or eight. And she thought I was the bee's knees. I was the cutest little, you know, and she kept sort of squidging me and squidging my cheeks and hugging me to her ample bosom. And uh, I just found it deeply uncomfortable and embarrassing. And I've seen photographs of her. She was absolutely stunning. But, of course, age seven or eight, uh, my brother, who was eight years older, was completely salivating over this lovely, this luscious maiden. And I was the one getting all the attention. So uh, that was quite a funny memory. <laughs> that is funny. Uh, so Tamari, lots of beautiful hidden coves around that part of the Costa Brava and, and perfect little beaches. The water is just such an amazing colour there. It is beautiful. And we used to go out, some uh, some other friends of, of my family used to go there. I think they introduced us, in fact, to the area. And um, we used to go out on a little fishing boat called the Bella Lola, which was one of those little uh, putt, putt, putt sort of um, fishing boats. I mean, it didn't have a mast or anything, just a little engine, which always broke down. But we'd go and explore all these coves and bays you're talking about and go around to uh agua gelida which was then a completely i know it was just being developed when we used to holiday there so it was a completely uh remote undeveloped area and then um agua blava which was the next uh, bay up from that and um i found it very exotic going going to visit all these bays and, and snorkeling and getting stung by jellyfish it was all very exciting yeah lots of jellyfish around there actually yeah yeah there, that's true so moving on to chapter three that is the place where you learned the most about yourself I suppose there were two. One involved travel and one didn't. One was actually in the summer holidays of 1980 when I was uh, um, I, I was at boarding school in Dorset, a place called Sherburn, and it used to run a summer school um, with the um, with an organisation called FAB, Physically Handicapped and Able-Bodied. And it was really just a, a, a summer of, you know, a couple of weeks of fun, but mixing with people who were physically handicapped and, and uh, as it says on the tin, able-bodied. Mm-hmm. And so I... I'd not come across people with disability that much in my life at all. And so to actually, you know, spend time and play games with and uh, either push a wheelchair around or, you know, get involved with with them uh, and or rather stop, stop seeing them as them and actually just becoming one of us mm-hmm. was quite a sea change for me. Yeah. And uh, that popped into my head when I read that question. I, actually, I did learn about my, I think my affection for people, <laughs> which um, may sound a funny thing, but I've sometimes been quite shy in my life and and um, I may appear, like many people may appear confident in public, but actually I'm quite reserved and, uh, and uh, to actually get out of my comfort zone and to engage with people I might not otherwise have come across was was really quite formative was very formative and 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 so enjoyable yeah and I can and I do remember having a lot of laughs with the people who whose lives were so much more challenging than mine mm. and that taught me a lot about myself and the other thing did involve travel and it was after I'd left school and I went on a trip through uh through Egypt and the Sudan and uh Uganda and and uh and Kenya wow. and then subsequently to India I, I worked in a bar to earn some money and then went off on this you know my gap year and um <laughs> And I look back at that journey that I did on my own, A, thinking now, age 50-something, what on earth were you thinking, <laughs> age 18, going through all those countries on your own? I, so many vivid memories, but but travelling through Egypt on my own was was really great. And, of course, as travellers, all travellers do, you hook up with other people and you spend a few days with them or a couple of weeks with them, then you move on and go different directions, but made some you know good, good acquaintances on that trip. But I remember being on a riverboat going up the Nile in the Sudan with a with a with a Islamic guy with a Muslim guy, 
and him just talking to me about Muhammad and being, and I said, look, I've grown up in the Christian tradition. Um, you know, I'm not a man of great faith myself, but I, you know, and he just, he talked with such passion and open and honesty about his faith. And it's just, again, a little snapshot memory of just with the sun going down on the Nile as we, you know, as our little uh, boat went chug chug up the, up the Nile. And he absolutely wasn't going to hear anything about uh, Christianity, but was was delighted to tell me all about Islam. And um, and we parted as, as not friends, but we, you know, we, we spent an evening together chatting. And uh, that was a very vivid memory. And then equally, when I got to Juba in the south of the Sudan and then wanted to get on a, a hitch a ride through Uganda, um, the, the deal was that you sort of hung around the truck stop and, and got on the back of an empty lorry that had de- deposited its goods and was driving back south. And you, you know, gave them some bit of, you know, a bit of cash and they'd uh, give you a lift. And that was all well and good, except when we got to the Ugandan border. And the key was to arrive just before sunrise, because that was uh, just after the um, guards had woken uh, woken up and before they started drinking again. Uh, so, so the hangover hadn't quite kicked in. So they were still a bit dopey, but they weren't, you know, and they basically wanted your bribes. Um, and we had there was a sort of court jester who was on board with the truck driver, and uh, his job was to entertain the troops whenever you got to a border and keep them happy and give them a bit of a bit of a bung, and so they'd let you through without any hassle. And uh, we arrived at this uh, the Ugandan checkpoint, and um, there was the, the the guard there who you know clearly this was an outpost and not a great posting for them. You know, were bored, and um, they they had on their guns they had their sort of rocket launchers. I mean, they were big. They look like oh normal sort of fireworks on the end of their rockets, uh, end of their guns, and I can remember this, uh, as it were, court jester getting out to give them a bit of you know a bit of cash or you know a bit of food or whatever, and have a chat. And this guy, this soldier, just jabbed him in the stomach with this uh, hefty rifle, and I saw the colour drain out of this uh, guy's face, the court jester's face, and he looked scared. And I thought, if he's scared, I think I should be scared. <laughs> and so that was a bit of a. I thought. Well, what I learned from that was I don't like guns <laughs> and, um, and uh, I don't really want to be at border crossings unless uh, they're really quite legitimate ones or rather ones that are run more, perhaps more efficiently. Quite intrepid travel from a young age, really. It was. And it set me up. But, you know, really, I suppose I haven't traveled in the same way since. So, you know, obviously, you start work and you start a family and you, 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 your your means or your your destinations become different. Equally, I um uh, I then went on to India and had a, an amazing six weeks just traveling across India. Um, and those, as everyone who's been to India will attest, the smells, the colors, the noise, the vibrancy is is so intoxicating. And I hankered after going back and it, no opportunity arose until five years ago when uh, Gurinder Charter asked if I'd like to play Lord Mountbatten. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, say to her, I'm completely miscast with Lord Mountbatten. I just said, yes, because it's going to be in India. <laughs> <laughs> so I barely read the script. I just wanted to go back to India. And, uh, uh, and so I was able to revisit all those sights and sounds again. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Wonderful. Well, we'll return to India in a moment. But first, I wanted to reflect also in terms of learning about yourself on your new film to Olivia. I imagine that part playing the author Roald Dahl going through an incredibly difficult time in his life allowed for moments of self-reflection too. I mean, the film depicts the marriage between Roald and the movie star Patricia Neal played by Keely Hawes at a time in his life that fans of his work really may not have been aware of. I certainly wasn't that he was had been through, that he was going through such a trauma. So what drew you to this complicated role and what did you learn about yourself through playing it i think that i think you've really touched on it there really the fact that it was a complicated role and a complicated man and a complicated relationship and a devastating experience that this couple faced um so all those elements really concocted to to make it a, an incredibly a, a, a interesting project to, to 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 take on i knew nothing about royal Dahl's life at all um i once I'd uh, engaged with the project, I then read, you know, as a, a lot of stuff, and um, particularly um, Boy and Going Solo, two autobiographical memoirs, which are very engaging, mm. um, and um, and you know, perhaps written not not with children in mind, but certainly aimed aimed at a more general audience. They're not or, they're not autobiographies. Yeah, they are memoirs, really. Um, and then I read some, you know, more more biographical stuff. And um, obviously had read some of the books um, over the years and began to piece together this picture of a really very complicated man, one who'd been through immense pain himself when he'd you know, spent months in hospital having you know, hurt his back, having crashed his plane. Um, and they'd, the family had been through great pain before the events of this film when the, the, the youngest son, Theo, um, suffered a, a, an accident in New York and um, was hospitalised and, and, and thankfully recovered um, brilliantly. Um, but that put the family under an enormous strain. And I began to learn what a driven man ruled was. He didn't sit back when Theo was suffering uh, with his head injuries. He actually got together with um, two colleagues 
and they invented this shunt that uh, helped relieve the pressure on the brain. It became a, a patented thing called the Weidel-Till valve. That was a shunt wow. that, uh, as I say, you know, saved, helped uh, thousands of children over the That's years. Extraordinary. Yeah, he was a, he was a, you know, he was a doer. He was a, a man who would not sit still if if adversity faced him. Yeah. Um, I think partly you can analyze it as you will, but uh, you know, probably having been cooped up in hospital for so long you know he wanted to grab life and make sure life life mattered so went into this marriage which was a delicate marriage in itself you know patricia by her own account in her own autobiography said that when she married ruled she was actually still in love with gary cooper the film star with whom she'd had an affair previously so you know this marriage had baggage in it as well as uh, pain and so by the time that olivia contracted measles when she was six or was it seven i can't quite remember um, his his daughter Olivia. Yeah, yeah. She uh, the uh, the daughter. Sorry, yes. When the the, the eldest child Olivia, um, they'd been through immense uh, complications already, and then to lose the daughter to measles as as they did was just uh, you know a devastating uh, a, a devastating um, had a de- devastating effect on on all their lives. Um, and of course, grief and tragedy like this affect different people differently. And the journey of grief, while it can be recognised that I think many people will recognise a sort of pattern in, in grief, it, 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 it comes at different times in different people's journeys. And uh, Ruled was in the sort of denial stage for a very, very long time. And while Patricia was having to still run the family and keep everything together at Gypsy House in Great Missenden. And um, it really charts that trajectory of, um, of, of pain. And uh, it's very honest account of both a tricky marriage or a, or a, a marriage that wasn't just all you know sweetness and light it's a complicated marriage um you know rule was not a successful writer at this time uh, he was known but he wasn't the, the celebrated author that he came to be patricia on the other hand was hugely in demand in both broad, on broadway and in hollywood um so that was kept in you know that was a, there's a tension there as well professionally speaking um, and into the mix, obviously, you know, just trying to cope with, uh, you know, the, the, how do you get out of this well of grief? So it was an immensely complex sort of story to try and engage in. And I'm making it sound incredibly gloomy, but it, I hope it's not. Yeah, there are there are gloomy parts to that tragic story. But I think the takeaway message at the end is certainly one of hope and positivity and coming through something awful. And both uh, Roald and Patricia having a kind of creative rebirth once they're out the other side of their grief. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I've been reflecting on this because obviously when we made the film, it was pre-pandemic and uh, no one could have predicted the resonance that it would have now, which is to do with, um, well, as, as Roald himself wrote, you know, had there been a vaccine around, my daughter would not have died. Yeah, and, um, and that's and a message at the end of the film. Yeah, here we are having this very discussion now. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, I, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm, I'm in the pro-vaccine camp, and I'm delighted that the vast majority of uh, people in our country are doing the same because we need a way out of this. And um, anyway, in, in in the film, the way out is that you know these are people who have been bereft, and they find a positive avenue um through their creativity and i feel that we both as individuals who've lost people in this last year and indeed as ourselves who've lost a chapter of our lives of every generation we've all lost a huge amount in this last year but there can be a positive outcome there can be a way forward and i 
I think this film ends on a, on a note of that positivity. And there, I, I, certainly from my own perspective, from my own colleagues, I think there's going to be a great rush of energy, a great rush of positive, creative energy when all this is over. And I think that's exciting. Definitely. Well, speaking of rushes of creative energy then, I've been hearing in this last week rumblings about a Downton Abbey movie sequel on the cards. What can you tell us? Where are we up to with this? So exciting. Um, yeah, I think it's, there's no, no secret that there's, a, there's certainly been a, a script Um uh, put it this way, I, as it's an analogy I've used, you know, rather than all the ducks being in a row, they're quacking, you know, there's, <laughs> we're not in a position to get anything into a row because of, you know what, um, it would be great to think, wouldn't it, that we can, um, you know, in the coming months, get get the ducks into a row, not just quacking, and then all hop into the ponds and swim. Um, but uh, it's a long way off, I feel, uh, if some, it feels like that, but there is a will to do it. And, Cast are uh, all on board? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I can't speak for others, but uh, I, I'm keen to do it. And I know that, um, you know, the, the team would love to do it. And I think, you know, the script is gorgeous and um, fun and I think would be just the right tonic for when people oh. do get back into cinemas, whenever that may be. So much the right tonic. And actually, speaking of tonics, please tell me that there's a Paddington 3 also coming up. <laughs> um well, again, I, funnily enough, I, I ran into David Heyman, the producer, not so long ago, and he said, "No, we're we're absolutely, you know, we're, we're working on a story and a script, but we are not going to make it until the script is as good as the other two. So they are fantastic um, scripts, which is yeah, they are, and it was they were great. I was a great you know privilege to be in both of those, and um, so and I also it's very nice to have a producer who's not going, yeah, let's cash in and make a third, stuff the script, let's just dive in, get some dosh." Uh, he's saying no. We're good. We we owe it to Michael Bond and to the audience and to and to Paddington himself um, to to make it properly uh, and in and in the good in the fullness of time. If it's appropriate, we will. So that's a nice. Oh, that is great news! Great news. Okay, so moving on to chapter four. That is the big one. Your all-time favorite destination. Gosh, this is really hard uh, because yeah. Um, well, in terms of hotel, there's a difference between favourite destinations in terms of just place and feel and and hotels, okay? So we'll go for the cheap one, you know, the, the, the corny option, which is the favourite hotels. Uh, I think I'd have to be – the most exotic places I've been are, are to uh, the Four Seasons at Landa Guevara in the Maldives, um, which just is just heaven and um, beautiful – and also uh, Amangiri in Utah. It, uh, it it shouldn't be a hotel. It is the most ridiculous location. It's the side of a rock in Utah, and it but it, it looks like a James Bond lair. It's a sort of concrete series of blocks cut into the hillside, and it's the strangest location, but it's brilliant. And the vibe vibe of the hotel is just amazing, and I loved it. I went there on a we uh, my family we'd done a road trip a few years ago, and. Um, We'd started in in Wyoming and um, drove all the way down through um, Colorado and and down to and down to Utah, um, and this is uh, on the on the Arizona, near the Arizona border, and uh, it's a stunning place. It's in the middle of the it's sort of desert scrub, and it sort of feels like it. As I say, it shouldn't be there, but it's but therefore the atmosphere is unique, and uh, um, it's got a sort of strip back feel to it as i say these sort of concrete pods and quite futuristic but um really wonderful and a great atmosphere and amazing staff so that was that was really really special and i suppose in terms of other destinations i do go back to india i my i i went back to um as i say do this film about mount batten and and um, the partition of india 
um, which we filmed in 2005 in um, in Jodhpur. And there is something about the spirit in India which I just adore, and I, I can't put my finger on it. And it's not just actually there's something you know that you go through a city like Jaipur or Jodhpur, any 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 frankly any Indian city, and it is like an anthill. The, you know the, the sense of chaos. Uh, of people just getting from A to B is is mad is mad the buzz is extraordinary yeah. the, the the number of different festivals religions cultures all in this melting pot but particularly the sort of traffic and i know there are obviously you know hideous car crashes and everything else but on the whole you sense that through the muddle people are getting there getting from A to B they're wiggling around they've got a they've got sacks on their bike on their motorbike whatever they've got a car in the middle of the road they they're swerving around they get there from A to B and they seem to get on with it mm-hmm. in britain mm-hmm. we have traffic lights and roundabouts and road rage <laughs> and it's I, I i can't i can't quite get it put my finger on what it is but there is something in that indian spirit that that sort of fatalism or whatever it is, but there there is a more of a sense of acceptance about life being tough and we're getting through it and we're finding our little wiggly way through. Whereas in Britain, we you know we may have the what we think or thought we had the world at our feet and you know everyone owes us something and um and we have these rules and regulations about our traffic lights and our roundabouts, but we're still going to get crossed with the bloke in the car next to me. <laughs> I find it very strange and therefore I find a sort of solace in that acceptance of life in India that uh, you don't find in, in perhaps more um, westernized countries. And I perfect chaos. I adore. Yeah. The perfect chaos. I really, really love it there. And I feel strangely peaceful there. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not looking to go to an ashram or anything like that. I'm not particularly spiritual in that sense, but I do. I just do love the energy there. I do. Mm, makes me want to go. I've never been. Oh, got to go. Got to go. So next up then is chapter five, which is your hidden gem. Can you tell me about a place that you love that my listeners might not know about? Um, well, I'm not going to tell you my genuine hidden gem because then it wouldn't be a hidden gem anymore. So my <laughs> oh, number two, no. well, I've got a couple, the, the, again, in fact, going back to, to Jodhpur. So this is Rajasthan in India. Yeah. I'd, I'd um, in the middle of filming um, or prior to filming, uh, uh, several months before I'd, I'd lost my mother and, um, uh, and I'd never had time to process it. And I'd certainly not read all the letters. Then there were, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of letters yeah. um, when my mum passed away and I'd kept them in a bag and my brother and sister had read them, but uh, I, I'd, I'd not had time or, or not given myself the space to absorb them. Mm. And I took them with me to India. And one weekend in, during filming, I went away on my own to this place called Mihigar, which was um, about two hours or an hour and a half southwest of Jodhpur. And it was a little hotel in the middle of the desert, strange little place. And it was probably the most peaceful place I've ever been to. And um, and I was there were only about two guests there. And uh, the owner of the hotel came in from the town to say hello. And um, I said, how did you pick this spot? It's in the middle of one of those vistas in India that you can literally see for miles and miles of flat. And then you see in the way in the distance, a little hillock or something or a, or a tree or something. It was just incredibly barren land or, or quiet desert. And this was a tiny little rise, like a little wadi um, or um, a sheltered spot or something. That, and I said, why on earth did you build this little strange little hotel here, which is about, about 20 rooms, looked like a little fort. And he said, I used to come, my dad used to bring me here for picnics uh, when I was a kid and uh, this patch of land. And I said, one day I will build something here. 
And so it become it had been a family passion for him, and he'd made it into this very special little place. And it's where I found immense peace, and I was able to read all about my mum. Oof, I'm getting emotional now. Oh, <laughs> but I found it so it was a it was a it's not a hidden gem because you can you know you can book a room there you know it's not. Um, but for me, it was a real place of solace and calm, and I'd love to go back there. And uh, I, I will um, this you know when when I can um, because it meant a lot to me for emotional reasons, but also just to chill out from the from the busyness of the of being on a set and all that, and just to be on my own and uh, retreat a bit. So that was really it was a real really catharsis good. for you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it sounds like a beautiful place. Um, well, in contrast then, chapter six is your worst travel experience. <laughs> Have you had any real stinkers? Well, they've been... <laughs> well apart from train journeys in England, um, <laughs> um, I think there, well, there was... It was funny. I mean, like, so, you know, the, any hiccup on a, on a, on a journey or a, or a holiday or an experience, you hopefully can ultimately look back with them, um, uh, uh, you know, and laugh at it. But um, it was on that same road trip when we went down through Colorado and uh, into Utah, everyone of course, you know, wants to go to the Grand Canyon and um, in our, on our schedule. And so lots of people do it on a day trip, but it's, you know, it's probably one of the busiest places that one's ever been to, Yeah. but we decided to do, I wanted to, to be there at, at night and it made sense for our itinerary. So we booked a hotel, which I suspect was, if not the, it wasn't an, it wasn't an unpleasant hotel. It was just really grubby it's it's pretty much the there's only really one hotel isn't there i'd like to i'm not going to say whether we're on the north ridge or the south but (laughs) there are many there are some hotels this one was particularly grubby and absolutely relied on the fact that it was about the only hotel Mm. and that that, that no one stayed more than one night really yeah because you're either going to go off trekking through the canyon or you're going to head off on your next bit of road trip so they frankly couldn't give a monkeys. It's a shame, isn't <laughs> and, it? They're resting on their laurels there. Yeah, completely. And it was where it was. So my son uh, was with us, and uh, so we needed a, a Z bed, like an extra bed for the room. Well, they put they, they 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 put a bed in the room, but it was it was still sort of vertical and had a strap around it. And you know, you needed a sort of degree and worked out how to work out how to unleash it and and put it down and put all the bedding on and all that. So it wasn't it wasn't very welcoming. And you were and I'd, I'd asked and I'd asked for a really lovely room so we could look over the canyon. But the, you'd, you'd think people had been murdered in this room. You know, you, <laughs> I, I, you li- we literally all wore our socks in bed because, and the, the, you're pretty suspect linen. You sort of wanted, I was expected to see a sort of CSI chalk mark of a dead body on the floor, you know, or a stain, you know, where, where the victim had been found. It was pretty grim. And I remember the poor overworked waiter down in the restaurant with sweat literally dripping into the soup. It was pretty unsavoury. And um, <laughs> okay. the whole place, that sounds like a pretty bad one. Yeah, the place needed a lot of love and it just banked on the fact that you weren't going to be asked to complain because you were off the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Not going back there then. Well, we're on to the final chapter of your travel diaries, Hugh. Thank you so much for transporting us all around the world today. Chapter seven is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list. What would that be? Well, having spent some time with the bear from darkest Peru, you know, he told me a lot about his home country (laughs) and um, I've never been to South America. I've never been, I've traveled, I've been very fortunate to travel 
a lot uh, across the world. Um, I'm dying to visit New Zealand and, and Australia properly. I've never I've never been to Australia, but I think top of my travel bucket list um, is South America. I just think the the richness of variety of country and everything I've heard about it, the culture, the you know, the mountains, everything. I just want to go there. I don't know, I don't care where. I don't care which country. I just want to go. So that's um, when it's uh, safe and sensible to travel and. Um, uh, time allows. Uh, that's where that's where I'm headed. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much, Hugh. Those were your travel diaries. It has been wonderful talking to you today. Well, thanks, Holly. It's, it's been fun uh, chatting, uh, chatting, and, and, and cantering around the world. Well, that was Hugh Bonneville, a national treasure, I'd say, and I really appreciate how open he was with us it just shows again how emotional travel can be and what it means to reflect on these moments of our lives so I'm just so happy that he shared his travel diaries with us and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did to Olivia a Sky original film is out on Sky Cinema and Now TV right now Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast app so that you're updated with a new episode each week. And if you can't wait till next week or if you're new to the podcast, remember there's the first three seasons to catch up on from Michael Palin and Rick Stein to Dev Patel, Poppy Delavine, and Richard Branson. To find out who's joining me next week, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I would love to hear from you. I love reading all of your messages and share your own travel diaries using the hashtag the travel diaries. I'll be resharing your hidden gems, your recommendations and all-time favorites on my Instagram and here on the podcast later in the season. Thanks again for listening and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.